Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. My name is Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician. I'm also the co-chair of the JOMA Preventative Health Committee, and I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Sarah Asher. Dr. Asher is a licensed psychologist specializing in the treatment of children, adolescents, and young adults. She's currently the director of school psychology at the Yeshiva of Central Queens, where she coordinates psychology services for kindergarten to eighth grade students. Previously, she was a senior psychologist at the Yeshiva University Counseling Center. In response to the pandemic, she has spoken extensively to parents, school personnel, and community leaders about the effects of stress on child development and strategies to build resilience. Last week, I interviewed Rabbi Yitzi Ross, who's South Shore fourth grade Rebbe and author of the popular parenting blog and column Yid Parenting. And he said multiple times that children in his class are doing well overall and that children are naturally resilient and that they're adjusting well to the new normal, including mask wearing. Parents can really help by setting the tone here. But as a pediatrician, I see many children every week, even before COVID-19, who have significant mental health challenges. Anxiety, depression, and attention deficit disorder, ADHD, are the most frequent issues I encounter. It may surprise some to hear that one out of every six children, according to the CDC, ages two to eight, have significant developmental and or behavioral behavioral challenges. The rate of anxiety in U.S. teens aged 13 to 18, according to the National Institute of Health, is one in three. Really high, and I'm telling you, I see it every day, so I know that to be an accurate statistic. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Asher. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here and to talk with you, and I'm sure we're all going to learn a lot. Thank you. Yes, and so I want to start with how do you see the pandemic affecting the children? I and mean, I know school started, what, not two weeks ago. Right, right. Well, the truth is that over the course of the pandemic, I've really uh, kept my finger on the pulse of how the children are doing and how they're faring. And when this all started, that was really on the top of our minds, um, how the children will do and how all the stress will affect them. And, uh, you know, we don't have much precedent for such, such an experience in children's lives. So, and to some extent, um, we're in the throes of this. We're not finished with it. So right, we can't right. make any foregone conclusions about how the children fared, mm-hmm. but we can certainly keep our eyes open and we've noticed changes in children until now, um, starting mm-hmm. from the beginning mm-hmm. of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, the best I... The best way I could put it is that um, there, there are two, two ways in which this affected the children. Um, the most vulnerable children were the ones that, A, um, experienced stresses on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. So there's some level of dose effect, right? So you have children that might have experienced loss during mm-hmm. this time mm-hmm. or illness or fear of illness because of pre-existing uh, conditions in their family or loss of income. There have been, uh, you know, for families that were already struggling with marital discord, Mm -hmm. those families, it got worse often. Um, So these children were were particularly vulnerable. And you see that in any, you know, studies about abuse or trauma that Mm -hmm. typically there's some kind of effect where 
the, the more stress makes it more difficult for the child to cope with that, with that stress. And it eventually becomes toxic stress where mm-hmm. it affects all level, all levels of the child's functioning. So those, that was a vulnerable po- population. And the second vulnerable population were children that already had pre-existing tendencies towards anxiety, um, towards emotional dysregulation, towards depression, um, or you know, just having trouble in general coping or managing with stress. So so I would say those were the two. And over the course of the time, most of the people that were calling me or had particular concerns about their children were referring to in either of these groups. So that's a good explanation. Let's start with the first category and talk a little bit more about them. What are you seeing in those children? Um, I think actually some of those children are... I think now that we've started school, I think to some extent for a lot of children, it's regulating. Mm -hmm. Um, They're back in a schedule. um, They're back in knowing they they have a sense of control again. So for some of them, there's a relief to be back in school. Mm -hmm. But for some of the children, um, they're not quite ready or or they're, they're still acclimating to the expectations of regular daily life because I think um, they've been out of habit, you know, I, uh, right. For, for example, it's like they haven't used the muscle of right. now I got to focus on something right. and now I have to pay attention and now I have right. to work hard. So for families that were very stressed, I think the children had to um, take care of themselves to some extent because it's, mm-hmm. you know, there's stresses with money, stresses with marriage, stresses with health. So naturally the children, to some extent, have to be more independent. So now they're back in school and they have to follow the rules and they have to follow, um, you know, classroom expectations, and that could be a little harder. So they're, they might be looking more dysregulated in class. So when you say um, dysregulated, I'm just trying to explain that. When you oh, mean yeah, by that, so, so, so they might become, um, you know, it will be harder to call their attention to mm-hmm. class or on the on in the yard they might be becoming a little bit more aggressive or they're crying more easily mm-hmm. or they're getting more worried um or they're having difficulty separating from a parent to come into school so those would be some of the examples so how can a parent talk cuz i know parents are going to be listening to this and saying what can i do i think um I mean, I, I wouldn't, over the course of this podcast, I don't want to repeat myself too many times to bore mm-hmm. anyone, but in general, mm-hmm. um, I think that the most difficult part of this pandemic for the children outside of the obvious health mm-hmm. threats, right, to their family was the complete loss of routine, mm-hmm. um, the, the loss of habits, rituals, right? We all mm-hmm. have them to some extent, but for this vulnerable population, I think they lost them um, to a larger extent. So um, bringing that back into the child's life is very important. That sense of, I know what comes next. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing would be to really tuning into your child. How are you doing? How was your day today? Who did you play with? Um, 
you know, just like open-ended questions about how the child's doing, how they're feeling, you know, quality time with your child can be a board game also, it could be a card game, taking a walk around the block, mm -hmm. just in again. And I think for parents also that were very stressed, it's sometimes relieving to have the child outside the house for some of the days mm -hmm. so come back comes back home you have a little bit more emotional space for the child so so make that a point and if you're a very you know if you're an essential worker or you're at work a lot and you don't have it's not spontaneous that you could find this time with your child um schedule it you know find a time to do it that works for you and that would work for the child also you know put it in your calendar spend some time with my kids and I'm so, and also if the behavioral issues are persistent, they're ongoing, they're extreme. Um, this is not like your child. At that point, you know, you you would want to loop some other people into the story to get some help with it. You know, talk mm -hmm. to the pediatrician. And you know, I also encourage parents to talk to the teacher and ask the question: How is my child's behavior as compared to the other children in the class? Because right now, I think everyone's a little bit off. Mm -hmm. no one's really you know it's true what Robert Ross was saying was that everyone's doing most children are doing okay and I think that's true but um I think everyone doesn't look exactly the way the way they looked in February of last year we're still adjusting to being back in school we're still adjusting to the high levels of stress that everyone experienced so you want to ask the question in that way, how does my child look com as compared to how everyone else is adjusting? How is my child adjusting? And how would you know when to seek extra help? What's the difference between a child who's fidgety because they're back at school? And by, by the way, Rabbi Russ gave a great um, explanation. He said the biggest problem is everybody's blaming the masks and the plexiglass. And really, it's what he calls the, the real issue is the children just not used to sitting still. They backtrack yeah. over the summer. They backtracked even more over the six months they weren't in school. So it's so simple. You mentioned it too, is just getting used to the schedule, getting used to sitting in place for a long period of time. But when does it go from being normal to being a problem? So again, I think you would want to look at if it's an ongoing issue, if it's really unlike your child. So ongoing, I would say give it, give it a few weeks. You know, we have, I believe, 16 days from the start of school, if you started the day after Labor Day, until Sukkot. Mm -hmm. So you want, I think you, you would want to give it until then to see how they're managing. Um, and also, that, given that, time frame, I would say, is it extreme? Is the behavioral change extreme? Is it very unlike my child? You know, you, you need to use your own judgment as how far away is this from my, the way my child usually behaves? Mm -hmm. Usually managing okay in school, there is a range by which they're, you know, it, it's changed because they're still getting used to it or they had more screen time over the summer and over, you know, since school started. But it sh there is a range of normal. But outside mm. of that, you need to kind of have a sense like my child really doesn't have, um, my child is having a very hard time helping himself or herself right now. And I need to, to be able to help them a little more. So again, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's ongoing, it's persistent, and it's very unlike your child and it's extreme, meaning it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it seems to you that it's really out of the norm. Mm -hmm. And I like the abbreviation, not the abbreviation, but the four prongs of frequency, how often it happens, intensity, how severe it is, duration, how long it's lasting, and interference, how much it's interfering in your child's function to make it so simple. 
So try yeah. to keep those four, four principles in mind. And, you know, I do see parents who get so anxious. They're so anxious about what's normal, right? And then the opposite of parents who just don't understand that this is not normal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think we, we leave a lot of responsibility up to the parent to be mm -hmm. able to, to know what's normal for the child. But I think all of us as adults have a different um, threshold for what's normal or what's not normal, right. you know? Um, so that's why it's always good to talk, you mm -hmm. know, talk to your pediatrician, talk to a friend, you know, uh, talk to someone else that knows your child mm -hmm. well. I think it's always good, you know, be open. And I, and over this time, I've really been advocating for the, the release of this expectation that everyone else is okay, except, right. Right. you know, so, so feel comfortable to just say, you know what, I'm having a really hard time with my child. Can you help me out with this? Can you just, uh, you know, hear me out and let me know if, if I'm thinking right about it? You know, I think it's actually been very nice for people over this pandemic that they you don't have to keep pretending that everyone, you know, that they're, that they never struggle in their parenting um, and, and uh, it comes easy to them. Mm -hmm. So I think these are good questions and we don't always know the right answers. So it's really good and commendable to be able to speak with other people about it. Right. And also speak to the teachers, speak to the school psychologists. I think that there can be a partnership, by the way, between the family and the school and the physician. And I think that unfortunately the pandemic kind of broke that. People weren't even going to their doctor, let alone going to school. I can't imagine what it must have been like to live in such isolation with these yes. problems. Yes, I, I, on one hand, I would agree with you that people felt more isolated. But as I was saying before, mm -hmm. I think some of those barriers of I need to look just right and not, um, you know, not be able to be open enough to say I'm having a hard time kind mm -hmm. of fell, you know, that fell away. However, um, there, were, there were many opportunities, and I think many schools and um, community leaders were trying to find ways to connect with families over this time. And I think that that was actually very important because there was such a significant loss of sense of community. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the school community, while you may not feel very connected to it, it does provide you with a lot, you know, provides your children with friends. You know, you see other people when you're walking down the street, you know, there's some identification as we're all part of this community. Um, and, and it's true, there was certainly isolation, but there were, there were many efforts put out to also, you know, start something new. For example, in, um, at the school that I work at, I started a weekly webinar with parents and it was unbelievable to me i was so surprised at how many people showed up on these webinars you know because i think before covid i don't think i would have gotten the same crowd to come but people were so thirsty for a sense of community a sense of support mm -hmm. you don't want to be in this alone right together with other people and i think that would be nice if we continue that sense mm -hmm. Uh, we could all be, you know, supporting each other through this, even though it's messy and um, difficult. Right. And, and I wonder whether it's different now than when everybody was doing the same thing. I mean, what I saw from the patients that I saw during that time period is that even the children who had underlying problems were often doing better because their family was home. There was less going on. There was less pressure. And then now that we're trying to open, 
but we still have the disease among us. And there's so many polarization and so many different opinions and a lot of anxiety about it continuing to spread as we open. I wonder how people are going to do. Yeah. Yes, I think so. I think there, to some extent, there was a sense of, we all have one, um, method by which, by which we're addressing this, you know, mm-hmm. um, your parent gave you the same message, your teacher gave you the same message, your, you know, the, your friend's parents all felt the same. And mm-hmm. now that's really changed. I, I speak with parents and they're having a very hard time, for example, um, finding a play date for their child that they mm-hmm. feel comfortable with that other child has not been exposed to other people that are not being careful. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that that adds a, a higher level of anxiety now, which is strange because we were at the peak of the pandemic, right? You know, in April. But I think now it's because it's it's coming. It's forcing the parents to have to make these calls, these decisions um, that they didn't have to make before. Before, right. just everyone was at home. Right. You know, right. it wasn't like, well, you know, Joey's going biking with Michael. Why can't I go too? Mm-hmm. So that, that is a complicated piece. Absolutely. Are you seeing children with actual post-traumatic stress disorder? Um, I, I think I personally have not. Again, I think we need for this to be over, to be mm-hmm. able to have that retrospective um, look at it. You know, there are many psychologists that are in a way bracing themselves for the influx of seeing children with a lot of PTSD. Mm-hmm. I personally, I, I'm not, I, while I know that the pandemic can fit and does fit the criteria of a traumatic event, mm-hmm. right? it's an event that completely shifts your sense of normal. Mm-hmm. You feel out of control. Mm-hmm. It changes your sense of self. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it really fits that criteria. I still think that children rely on their parents to be making decisions about this pandemic and don't necessarily feel the same level of stress that the parents do. That doesn't mean that they didn't experience this as a a life-changing event um, or an ongoing event. But um, again, I, I, we are not finished with this. So it's not, so it's hard to be able to say we're seeing that, but I'm certainly seeing depression. I'm certainly seeing anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly seeing um, levels of OCD that I had not seen before, Mm. you know, for children that are having extreme levels of worry and fear. Um, I'm seeing separation anxiety. Mm -hmm. So, you know, while it is with, with adults, with PTSD, sometimes, an adult gets a few diagnoses before someone hits the nail on the head and says, this is actually PTSD, all that depression, anxiety, you know, um, obsessive thinking that was Mm -hmm. actually the gestalt of it. The bigger picture of it is actually PTSD. It might be that in a few months we'll say, well, all that anxiety for that child was actually a traumatic response. Um, but, but again, I think right now, um, I personally am able to kind of, I, I, I personally am not ready to kind of give that diagnosis for a child without it being, um, without us getting to the other end of this. So we're not post yet is what you're saying. We're just not post, so we can't be PTSD. But what would PTSD look like in a child? Because I've actually not seen too many kids with it. 
Yeah, so I think PTSD in a child, you know, there's a lot of debate about trauma in children. There has been a strong movement to move away from trauma as being a, a singular event mm-hmm. to being more like a complex web of events for the child that ultimately gives them difficulty. So, so will give them difficulty with managing their emotions. They might mm-hmm. be more sad, angry. You might see anger. You might see aggressiveness. You might see withdrawal mm-hmm. in a child. You might see difficulty trusting. Um, a general sense of lack of meaning for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you might see something where it might affect their learning or their attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you can see a large constellation of symptoms as mm-hmm. a result of what we call toxic stress. Mm-hmm. So again, it may be a result of, again, domestic violence and a combination of low socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. a combination of stressors that results in what we call like a complex PTSD in a child. Mm. But really what you're saying is the same thing we'd see in a child who might be depressed or anxious and children who are depressed don't necessarily cry all the time, right? They could be acting out, they could be irritable. Yes. They don't necessarily appear sad. No, actually more likely you're going to see an angry angry child, Mm -hmm. you know, and a withdrawn child or a child that's shut down. You Mm -hmm. know, uh, it's like a, the teachers sometimes come to me and say to me, this child looks like he's completely shut down. Like mm-hmm. I can't access this child. They're emotionally um, sealed off. Mm-hmm. So that to me sounds like depression. When I go meet with that child, that's what I'm trying to rule out. Because, mm-hmm. um, Or you'll see a very kind of agitated, doesn't want to get close, doesn't want to talk, doesn't want to engage, you know, uh, more angry. And they come home, they slam their door. They don't want to talk to you. Um, so more likely you're going to see it as anger rather than as sadness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in children. What, what is the role of the school psychologist here? What can you do and when do you need to get further help? The school psychologist, the role they played during this time was very um, extensive, but I could say just in terms of this topic, if you have any concerns about your child, you're welcome to call your school psychologist and discuss it with the school psychologist. If it's something that the school psychologist can either meet with your child mm-hmm. uh, to help you determine what's going on with the child, they could also speak with the teacher and help mm-hmm. and consult with the teacher about how to help the child. You know, some mm-hmm. children need a break. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they, they need to go take a walk down the hall and take a few deep breaths and go, go get a drink um, of water, or they might need someone to reach out to them during recess to help mm-hmm. with them, right? Um, so there might, they might need more positive reinforcement. So they could also consult with the teacher and just mm-hmm. give them a heads up, you know, Melinda's having a hard time managing coming back to school she's dealing mm-hmm. with a lot of anxiety depression so can you help her out um the the other thing they could do is be a really good referral source mm-hmm. um so t- 
typically in schools, counseling, unless it's on their IEP, their individualized education plan, counseling mm -hmm. is usually short term mm -hmm. with the school psychologist or someone else on her team. But the, uh, it's, it's very upsettingly so. It's not easy to find a therapist that you connect with, that you feel good with, that you could afford. Mm -hmm. But the school psychologist should be able to walk you through that process. You know, mm -hmm. they might be able to help you find someone who takes your insurance um at a local clinic or they they will also then be able to con if you sign a release a consent they could also connect with that therapist and if the therapist has any suggestions for the school they could then communicate that to the teacher mm -hmm. so they just you know, really play a very important supportive role right so what you're saying is on, on the first level they can be there to help when children are having issues adjusting to school. The reason I'm, I'm trying to really belabor this point is because I think sometimes people think, well, my kid's getting counseling. They're getting counseling in school and they expect that counseling to be more than it can be, right? I, I can't agree with you more. Um, I find that actually a very frustrating topic because I think children are less verbal than adults in mm -hmm. general, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly so, if they're younger, right? Right, especially if they're younger, and even if they're older, just some kids just haven't mastered that right. that technique yet. Yeah, so counseling is through play, is through talking, but then you're you're trying to help the child, and and it can really help the child. But you need to be able to support the child in their environment. They don't right. have the ability to manage or control any aspects of their environment. So you need to be able to include the other caretakers, teachers, the mm -hmm. other support team. You know, we need to have a team for this child. Right. Let's, let's all rally together and help help this kid out. Um, the counseling, again, can do something, but the really powerful piece is if we can really include the other adults in that child's life. Right, so teamwork is, is key for school counseling, but for some children, that's all they're gonna need right, depending on the issue, and others are going to need more. So you can definitely be a referral, but I can't emphasize enough because from my end, what's so frustrating is I feel like pediatricians are kind of left out of the loop. There's a lot of concern for stigma and confidentiality in the mental health field. And, you know, it is important, you know, to have that confidentiality and to have yeah. the parents give permission. I can't tell you how much I want to be involved, how it's important to get your pediatrician or your child, you know, healthcare professional involved, because you need to create a team. And as a parent, you're your child's best advocate. So don't yeah. be afraid to say, hey, I think we need more help and listen to people who tell you that your child needs help. Because I feel like also, because it's not visible, your child gets a strep test and you're like, oh, it's strep, I'm going to take antibiotics. And someone tells you your child may have an attention problem or an emotional problem, and it's not visible and it's easy to deny it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, usually my first step is to tell the parent to go to the pediatrician. Thank you. Um, I think I do that like at least five times a day. <laughs> tell different um, parents to go to their pediatrician. And I can find when I have a partnership with a pediatrician, right. you I hit the, hit the gold mine. Right. Because uh, the pediatricians can be really helpful in giving me context. I could be helpful in giving them context. And then, um, the parent also has a sense of, I'm not only focusing on one area, I'm, I'm making sure to rule out anything physical, or if we have to coordinate 
on medication management. I have two people that each have eyes in different areas. Right. So the school psychologist has a perspective from the school, but the mm -hmm. pediatrician wants to make sure that physically the child is is uh, acclimating to the medication okay. So so everyone has a little piece of it. Right. And when they work together. So yes, the pediatrician is a very important piece. And I actually think if with a little bit of education um, as to what the pediatrician or the school psychologist does with the information, I think that there will be more likelihood to give consent um, for two people to speak. You know, sometimes there's a little bit of a lack of trust, like, mm -hmm. Oh, now, you know, everyone in the school is going to be telling each other that my child has ADHD, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and there's a fear about that. Right. Like, I, don't, right. I really don't want everyone to know that. So I think in a sense, if they're reassured that there are boundaries and, you know, I'm bound by confidentiality, mm -hmm. as is the pediatrician, and mm -hmm. we're all talking to each other, and we right. respect privacy and all that, that a little bit of reassurance goes a long way. But I right. think, you know, for any parents listening, that's an important piece that uh, you you want to connect all your care providers. You know, if someone, you know, God forbid, was dealing with a physical illness, you would want to make sure that the gastroenterologist is talking to um, is talking to the neurologist. You know, what I'm saying like you want to make it's, it's one body, it's one person. Right, but as a pediatrician, I get reports all the time. Almost all the specialists give me my reports. I have an electronic medical record. It goes boom, boom, boom in, and I get nothing. Maybe a release to talk, but no reports. Um, so I want to stress to the parents, please, you have to sign consent. You have to ask. You have to ask the doctor. You have to ask the therapist or the psychologist and, and then give the permission. You have to make it happen or it won't happen. Yeah, I think also for the sake of, yeah, I think that, you know, I'm trying to think of, of situations I've been involved with that I only found out afterwards about mm -hmm. the phys physical piece. And I'll tell right. you, I'm just giving you the opposite right. example. I'm dealing with a child who, who becomes so anxious, he runs out of the classroom and no one could find him. And then we find him on the, steer, mm. the stairwell and, you know, the stairwell and we have to talk him down and, and do some deep breathing and and he's so overwhelmed it's almost like he for that half hour he is uh he has almost no sense of control over his mm. ability to manage his own anxiety and then i found out i think uh, uh about a few months later that he has pretty severe asthma mm. um so that was really contributing to his anxiety mm -hmm. he, would have, he would start because when you start feeling anxious you start breathing in a more shallow way mm -hmm. Right, so it was very important for me to put those two together. So he would start breathing in a more shallow way, then it would trigger a large, you know, uh, overwhelming sense of anxiety, and then he he would run out of the classroom, which to him was a way to get more air. Like he was mm. almost like I need more space. I need to run to the stairwell. Wow. Um, wow. But putting this all together was very helpful to him. You know, like when you need to go to the nurse, when you need to do some breathing exercises mm -hmm. to get a sense of calm, you could have a break, you could come to this place instead of running away so we can't find you. Um, you know, when, when you put it all together, so I'm saying on my end also, I, it's very important that the pediatrician is involved. Right, so when, when would you tell a family that they need to get help outside of school counseling? Um, that's a good question, I think. 
I think, you know, <clears throat> school counseling could also be helpful for the child. It's like a safe place at school, even though school is generally, hopefully a safe place for the child, but it's like you have that one person. But if I get the sense that, again, it's, it's a little bit beyond the pale of the school counseling, that it involves um, a family matter that needs to be addressed in counseling. And I, I feel that that's very often the case, meaning mm -hmm. when someone in your family is struggling with something difficult, it affects everyone in the family. Right. So everyone needs to learn to deal with it. Right. So a limit of school counseling is it's for the child. It's not for the whole family. Right. So I you, you may need to know what's happening in the family. That's not irrelevant, but that's not the same thing. Family counseling is often a very important part of outside counseling, not not in school. Yeah. So I actually very often refer out. I'm happy if I feel it's helpful to the child to also provide the counseling in the school. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually feel it's a very important piece because, you know, for a parent to be struggling with a very anxious child or a very you know, withdrawn child or a child with social issues, it is really hard. And they are, the child's not just exhibiting those behaviors at school. Right. It's, it's almost never the case that it's only at school and only at home. Um, so everyone needs support and tools in that situation. And that's a perfect segue to something I don't want to forget to say or to forget to talk about, which is that one thing parents can do is how take care of their own mental health and take care of how they're projecting to their children because we're setting the tone for our kids. And so if people yes. want to know what to do. That would be like my number one piece of advice. Yes. Yes. You know, it's so funny because um, I was reading this research the other day about this uh, psychologist was doing this research about how parents communicate their own stress to their children. Mm -hmm. So he basically split everyone up into two groups, you know, random assignment into two groups. And he asked, uh, one, he, he told one set of parents, you know, to think about something very stressful and then not show it to their children, right? Meaning don't pretend that you're not stressed out, right? And then the other group, he said to them, it's okay, you don't need to hide it from your children, you know, mm -hmm. you know be able to, you know, you're stressed out and, but you don't need to, um, you, you don't need to inhibit that right. response to your children. In both circumstances, all the children knew that their parents were stressed out. Hmm. So, <laughs> meaning our stress is communicated to our children. And this is not in a way to put more responsibility on the parents, but right. it's definitely an encouragement to say, we really have to take care of ourselves because I think actually the children's reaction to this pandemic was largely related to the parental stress. And that's right. why I was saying before the layers, the dose effect of, of this pandemic. And in a lot of ways, the parents acted as a buffer to the anxiety of this whole pandemic, you know. Um, but sometimes that wasn't the case and the children, children did become overly anxious about it. But um, but yes, I'm certainly, I, I just feel like children are sponges. They pick this stuff right. up and we cannot take care of our children very well if we're feeling very overwhelmed, very stressed. It's really worth it to take the time to, to you know, really um, try to find a way to bring down your own stress level. Um, and parents have been very creative about this and some parents have just continued to find a very 
hard to do that um, when you have small children in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, I was telling you about that survey. So I think almost 80% of the parents responded that. So I, I, there were 300, about 300 respondents in this survey and almost 80% responded that they found the work life demands were too much for them to handle. Mm -hmm. During so the I, pandemic. During the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that that is the most significant kind of predictor of the child's stress levels. Um, is, yeah. Right. But if most of us found it difficult, but a lot of us were able to still help our children handle it, what did they, the ones who were more um, successful in keeping their children more buffered do? What can we do as this goes on? Because it's not over. Yeah, oh. you know, meaning life comes with a huge amount of insecurity as mm -hmm. it is. And then we had even more insecurity put right. on us, you know? So we lost the sense of control. And I think in life, we're not necessarily looking for control. We're looking for a sense of control. Right. So I think what a lot of those parents a lot of parents, many uh, parents were doing was creating a new routine um, in their home. They were taking care of themselves as much as they could, if, even if that meant waking up a little bit before the children wake up, staying up a little later so they could take care of themselves, talking to friends, seeking out support, um, doing some very serious self-care. Um, so they were maybe creating routine. They were doing self-care. They were they they found options of ways to dealing, um, e even in a very difficult situation, and in a lot of ways that really models resilience. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty incredible thing that most parents were really right. able to model to their children. This is really crazy, you know. And and in fact, we've never lived through a pandemic. <laughs> And, and we have no model for this. Yeah. Yeah. And we have I want no to emphasize, yeah, I want to emphasize um, self-care over structure because every time I hear structure, I hear routines that I was not good at. Okay. <laughs> I was really bad at that. I mean, I have older kids, yeah. but still, I mean, we just sometimes just, you know, we stayed in our pajamas all day. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I think that, that taking off the pressure of people that, you know, when they're feeling like they barely, you know, got their heads out of bed in the morning and that was the biggest struggle, um, taking care of yourself. It's like that oxygen mask model. When they say on the airplane, put your oxygen, the parents should put their oxygen mask on first. You can't help your kids if you can't help yourself and don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Yes, exactly. I mean, exercise was a major one. I saw a oh, lot yeah. of people just mm -hmm. walking around the neighborhood. You know, uh, the other day I saw my neighbors, they, it was 1130 at night and she was jogging around the neighborhood. Um, and I, I thought that was great. Like just do whatever you can to take care of yourself because, um, you know, you're kind of almost like when, when you're, it's kind of like exactly the oxygen mask, but, but you're kind of conducting the orchestra here and the orchestra will play even if you're out of sync, it's just not going to play in a way that you feel good about. Um, and I think honestly, again, the, the, this hit hard for everyone. There was mm -hmm. this, ambiguous grief during this time like the loss of loss of things that we typically look forward to um like you mentioned before the loneliness um definitely for parents and and diagnosable increase in anxiety mm -hmm. in parents and parents this was a yeah. very hard time 
for people right. to manage. Right. So it's so important that when parents aren't able, they're back to that frequency, intensity, duration, and interference with their life. Exactly. They take care of themselves. They seek their own help for mental health care, you know, through their healthcare professional. And yes. I want to thank you so much, but I want to just give people a, just a couple of resources for more information. Again, we're going to both reiterate that you can speak to your teacher, your school psychologist, your pediatrician, your other healthcare professional. Don't be afraid to reach out. Keep us all in the loop. Um, but a couple of resources, there's OHEL, ohelfamily.org. Org. There's Amudim, an amazing organization, amudim.org, and Relief, which is reliefhelp.org for specific mental health referrals. And I'm going to thank you so, so much for doing this with me. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. And Shana Tova. Shana Tova to you and all the listeners. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.